0: Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Howe. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published in the US, Canada, and Mexico, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. Today, we're speaking with Twilight Greenaway and Reginaldo Haslet Marroquín. Twilight is the executive editor of Civil Eats. Her articles about food and farming have appeared in The New York Times, NPR, The Guardian, Food and Wine, Gastronomica, and Grist, among others. Recently, Edible Communities and Civil Eats partnered to produce a series of pieces. Twilight is the author of the recent story, A New Paradigm for Poultry, How Regenerative Farms Are Rethinking Chicken. Reginaldo Boreghi is featured in the story. He's a farmer, agronomist, and the founder of the nonprofit Regenerative Agriculture Alliance. Rehi was born and raised in Guatemala. He's also founder and CEO of Tree Range Farms, a Minnesota-based network of over 40 farms stewarding land and raising chickens among trees and perennial crops using a method that supports both the land and the birds. He's focused on creating a collective governance structure to ensure the ecosystem's social, economic, and ecological criteria remain intact as it grows in scope and scale. Rehi is the author of In the Shadow of Green Man, My Journey from Poverty and Hunger to Food Security and Hope. Rehi and Twilight, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Thanks, Amy. It's nice to be here.
1: Thank you. This is awesome.
0: Twilight, longtime listeners might recognize you because you were actually my first ever guest on Eat, Drink, Think. We're glad you're back. Before we dive in to looking at regenerative poultry, can you give us some context by describing how industrial poultry is raised today and the impact it might have for the climate, the humans living nearby those farms, and the animals themselves? Sure.
2: I think Rahi can probably also chime in a bit on this as well, but I have been learning about, and in some cases, observing the industrial poultry industry for a number of years. And it's usually out of sight for most Americans. It happens in relatively small, enclosed spaces. I think you may have heard that there are fans required to keep these spaces working, that if they don't have the fans running at all times, the birds will suffocate. And I feel like that's a really telling detail because... There are so many birds in these barns, and they are usually raised by contract farmers who typically don't own the birds. They own the barns, but the birds are owned by large companies, and the companies often will deliver the birds. The farmer will raise the birds for a given window. They will often deal with the casualties shall we say the birds who don't make it and that's often quite a few and then the company picks up the birds slaughters the birds and the farm they may get a small respite in between but typically they will start all over again they'll start with a new cycle of birds so it's this kind of oh i should also add that the company the larger company tends to own the feed as well and they control the breed they control what else goes into the feed in terms of growth and preventing sickness in the birds. So it's a fairly well-documented system that I think most would say is not good for the animals and not very good for the environment. The waste tends to, as you can imagine, large numbers of birds, the waste tends to collect. It's often sprayed onto nearby land. It's sprayed sometimes in quantities that the land cannot absorb. And so if there's rain, if there is snow, if there's flooding, it's particularly bad. The waste, whether it's nitrogen or phosphorus or other aspects of the nutrients, the waste can end up in the water, can end up staying in the soil. So The footprint can be ongoing and quite large environmentally as well. And then you have the human aspect, which is not a whole lot better, has gotten worse in the last few decades. The contract farmers are usually in what's called a tournament system. They are competing against one another in many cases. The top producers are able to earn something closer to a decent living, and then the folks at the bottom of the tournament are not, usually. So it's It's a a system that's ripe for for reinvention, if you ask me.
0: And Rehi, can you please take us for a bit of a mental walk? If we were to step onto your farm with you, what would we see?
1: Well, the first thing, um, I may reverse the order of your your, uh, words, eat, drink, and think. I would say think, eat, and drink. Um, and that is it's, it's kind of what we do here. We first think about all of this and think I mean in a in a extensive way think about the birds, think about the environment where they will grow according to what the what the animal's ancestral or geoevolutionary blueprint may be. We, and, and, and that is expressed in the farm, in the case of chickens, ch- chickens being a jungle fowl, when you walk into our, one of our farms, what you will find is either a grown forest, a uh, forest that is already in the process of growing, or a field that is planted and the when the trees are starting to grow. And so depending on the stage of development of the farm operation, you will find any of those scenarios. Under that scenario, there will be a chicken coop, which is what the shelter that is used for the chickens to sleep at night. Uh, during the day, the chickens are 100% ranging in one of two paddocks that they are rotated into. Those paddocks are planted, again, with those trees. Those trees are selected from native species uh, primarily, but also native species that are also economically valuable to the farmer and that can produce a crop that can be marketed. In our specific case in Minnesota, you will find hazelnuts or elderberries or both as an understory. And above that, you'll be finding other native species from the big big woods ecology as where where I am sitting right now, which would include basswood, sugar maples, uh, oaks, and so on. Now, not necessarily grown when the farm is getting started, especially like in my case where the farm... Just in twenty twenty in twenty twenty was um, was a cornfield, and for forty plus years it was either a cornfield or a soybean field, and so I came in in twenty twenty one, and in May we started the transition. And even though in this it's been a few years, you can already see the huge difference when you walk in there and you see these coops, you see the paddocks, you see the feed bins, you see the watering system that already was installed to irrigate the paddocks. And then um, the chickens are in the barn at night, they will come out and flock literally out of the barn, into the paddocks, into the field. They will range all of that during the day. And because there's um, forages and because there is shade, we also can easily sprout whole grains, uh, whether it's a single grain or a multiple uh, mix of grains, depending on what we have available, is then spread into those fields when it's not raining. Like right now, it hasn't been raining pretty much the whole summer. We had some rain at the beginning of the spring and then it dried up completely. And so when it's dry like this for a long time, in these drought conditions, uh, we can use that lower temperature in the soil level because it's covered and it's got shade and all of that to uh, sprout grains, which then the chickens forage over. All of this is thought through and designed to resemble the ancestral habitat of the chicken while systematically adopting it so that we can optimize the output of each production unit, as we call them. Each one of those production units is one and a half acres divided into 0.75 paddocks each and then planted with all of the species we're talking about, aiming at at providing the poultry with that ancestral habitat that then speaks to them in a very important way. You may, may think this like, well, what do you mean speaking to the chickens? Well, it does. It is like if you walk into a forest and you are paying attention, it, it will speak to you. You will find that there are many sounds, There there's many things that, that, that you can learn just by listening to the sounds. And the same way for the chickens, when they walk out into that space, you can see them learning uh, again to be poultry, to be chickens and to just do the things that chickens are supposed to do. But at the same time, it's not a romantic idea. It's, it's, it's not a, you know segregated thing out there. We can raise 1,500 uh, chickens uh, meat chickens per flock in this environment, and because we use slower growth breeds that they can range better and walk around and jump and fly and things, not fly off, but, you know, take leaps and stuff. Those uh, chickens take longer to grow. And that's intentional because, yeah, in a, in a mechanized system where your output is is the core of your business proposition, you will grow uh, chickens in confinement that are, are going to grow in 49, 50 days to a very large, you know, seven, six and a half pound live bird that then can yield a four and a half pound dressed chicken that shows up at the market. But the challenge with that is that the chicken is not allowed to move. They cannot because they will suffer from heart attacks and other issues because their organs just can't develop at the speed that their bodies do. So in order to do this, the farm you will see has a breed that is is not designed for confinement. is is actually more representative of the traits of the chicken, and they will be running around and all of that without having what is called flip-over effects, which is literally an industrial breed. You put into the conditions that we raise our chickens and they will, in a hot day like today, they will run 10, 20 feet, stop, flip over, because they get heart attacks. Uh, that's because their organs just don't develop according to the needs of the body and so on. So that's what you will find is a fully integrated thought through from a technological, systemic, agronomically, scientific, animal welfare, productivity-wise, all of that has been incorporated into providing this, this unique design that can actually deliver any amount of chicken you want. I mean, I gave you a simple fact. If we take the total consumption of chicken in this country we can then break it down into production units, just the same way you can break the total consumption into farm units, conventional units. The difference is this won't be conventional; this will be this kind of regenerative system. But it is it can be mathematically factored so that you can calculate how many farms, how many flocks, how many production units, how many trees, hazelnuts, grain—all of that is needed to produce all of the chicken that consumers could potentially want. From a different source, that's what you will find is a full system design with a minimal expression, which is the production unit.
0: Does the land exist in this country for that dream of moving 100% to this sort of production?
1: Oh, not only that, but it's embarrassingly small the amount of blueprint land blueprint that we need. I did the numbers for five percent of the total consumption of this country, and it barely takes three and a half million acres. I mean, literally, if you took a piece of Minnesota, for example, and I'm not saying that we should grow all the chickens in Minnesota. I mean, in fact, they should be grown closer to the markets, right? But if you took three and a half million acres in Minnesota to cover five percent of the total consumption of chicken in this country, if you if you fly a plane at ten thousand feet above, it would be hard. You'd be hard pressed to find those three and a half million acres. It's it's such a small uh, blueprint. But not only that, remember that it's it's not about taking up the land. I mean, to grow confinement chicken, you need to literally destroy the ecology in order to grow corn and soybeans to feed them. In this case, you're actually restoring the ecology instead. You're not taking up land. You are regenerating land. Uh, That is a very different proposition. So not only is the land as a landscape and size more than sufficient in fact I did the numbers also for the global consumption of chicken and I estimated that between Minnesota and Iowa we got all of the land that we need to, to even grow all of the corn and soybeans and all of the stuff that we need we would change that too of course if we if we could um, be in charge of it we would be doing cropping, corn you know uh, agroforestry systems to grow all the uh, all the grains and all of that. And as we do that, I estimated that it would take just around um, all of Minnesota's farmland and about two thirds of Iowa to produce the global consumption of poultry while restoring all of the rivers, all of the wetlands, all of the native species, bird habitat, migratory bird habitat, Reigniting the econom- economy of rural communities, removing all the runoff, all of the nitrogen that is now polluting the, the Des Moines River and destroying the waterways and the drinking water for cities like Des Moines and so on. Yeah, that's what it would take. It is embarrassingly simple from that perspective. It is embarrassing that we cannot, as collectively as a society, capture the that this kind of vision can't yet capture the imagination at a level that would that would literally, you know, get into our psychics so that we stop destroying the planet in the name of food.
0: Do you get pushback from industrial poultry producers' resistance just to change in general? Or do they have specific, um, you know, things that they say, this is why we don't want to move in that direction?
1: Well, I have never asked them to move in this direction. To me, somebody either wants to do this or they need to keep doing what they're doing. The question is: Would consumers choose those who choose not to move in this direction? And that is a question I want. I keep asking consumers, and more and more, the answer is absolutely. I mean, especially when people get to see these chickens, they. I mean, there is a lot of vegetarians that have come out here that are now eating our chicken. Uh, to give an idea of how how much how much integrity and spirituality there is in this way of doing food. Uh, to the extent that makes you know, brings you back at peace with the idea that animals can be food. Um, not everybody, of course, but again, those who don't want, we're not asking them to. It's a choice that people are making on their own. We're just simply putting the facts out there. Now, the pushback it hasn't been against us specifically, but it has been very generic. For example, the industrial system has used the the county. Uh, citizen registry or, and, and farmer registry to send out letters that that actually portray us as the entry point for say the avian flu and, and as being a threat to their conventional operations because because the migratory birds would bring the flu our birds would catch it out in the fields and then get established but the science now has has shown extensively. That the opposite is actually what is true, that birds in confinement actually are so depressed, so deteriorated in immune resistance capacity, and so confined that they are also the entry, they actually the entry point for diseases. No different than when uh, we separated people uh, because of COVID, right? Six feet apart. Why? Because because if you are in confinement you are more bound to uh, acquire and to spread disease at a larger scale. Well, why would we ever uh, assume that it's different for animals? I mean, they are also creatures like us, right? So from that scientific evidence that we are now using as a way to manage epidemics and pandemics, uh, we can use the same principle for our system where our poultry is actually the least of all the risks out there uh, from that perspective. So. Having said that, though, that's one way that we, we have gotten pushback, uh, you know, misinformation really just through, through putting out facts that are not true. The, um, the, all the pushback that we get is more subtle. Is a lot of companies are just appropriating this kind of language, regenerative language, and even claims that their chickens are naturally raised and things like that putting it on labels and they got the capital to lie about it and to make it known. We don't have the ability to get our word out at the same scale. And so we get pushed back, but not necessarily because they are talking about us or or lambasting us, but it is because they are appropriating our work and then claiming us their own and then going out there and confusing consumers and then stealing that consumer power Away from a potential shift. That, those are the ways that we have to deal with this right now. Um, as far as a farmer wanting or not wanting to do this, we really don't don't sweat that. If a farmer doesn't want to do this, it's it's all good. There is there is more farmers that want to do this, that thinks this way now than we can engage. So so we're fine in that area. And the more farmers that come along seems to be an exponential growth it's a geo geometrical growth so so we know that the more the more farmers that engage uh, the more farmers that want to engage that are, don't need convincing but just need training and support and and so on
0: some of the talk around the word regenerative has to do with certifications do you feel like having some kind of a, a certification would help you to get rid of that disinformation that the greenwashing that's maybe confusing consumers?
1: Yes. In part, that is true from a market perspective. And we are actively right now working with the regenerative organic certification, the ROC, uh, to put our poultry, to put that label on our poultry. But I got to be clear, we're doing that because because we need to have it in the marketplace so that consumers, consumers can have more confidence and that we can also differentiate from those that cannot qualify for a label like that, the label isn't what makes you regenerative. No, regeneration is something that happens. It's a way of living, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of relating to the living systems on on the, account, on, the on the landscape, is a way to relating with each other, is a way of being in the context of being honest about what you are doing and what you are not doing, and so. To the extent that a labeling scheme is not going to be honest about who they certify and how, that, that de- deteriorates the concept of regeneration as well, whether it is called regenerative or not. So regen- regenerative ways and regenerative thinking and regenerative outcomes are, are just that. You know, Something is either regenerative or is not. Whether you label it or not is irrelevant to whether it is or is not regenerating. Now, from a marketing perspective, what I'm saying isn't going to, to exactly gain us market share. So, yes, a label, a third-party certifier is critical. But again, very watchful that the third-party certifier also has the same level of understanding and integrity so that it doesn't compromise the actual regenerative outcomes, which is what matters, not, not necessarily the label. But in order to get there, we need the consumer engagement. And to have the consumer engagement, this is critical. So I hope that that gets us into a space where we understand what we have to do, what we need to do, and then how we go about doing that so that the integrity is not compromised.
2: Mm-hmm. I just had something to add about about the regenerative organic label that I think is interesting. They just they just released a press release about reaching their their one millionth acre, I believe it is, and so much of it is outside the U.S. And I looked at their map, and there are very few very few operations within the corn belt who qualify for their labeling and i think it's fascinating that that rehi your operation does and will um, in terms of the the big picture of the regenerative labeling sort of movement mm-hmm.
1: it is and we're proud of it and we want to we want to promote those that have integrity and won't just certify a parking lot
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the fact that they're sort of starting with organic and building on top of it, I think, sets them apart from a lot of other folks in the regenerative space who are um, who are often seeing regenerative and organic as opposed to each other or as these kind of competing worlds. So that's that's another piece that that interests me about it.
0: Yeah, I think there's enough confusion about the word regenerative because of how it's applied, as Rehi said, by companies that are just um, using it as an idea, as opposed to a practice, so that in the marketplace, there's enough concern, confusion that that certification becomes actually useful if only during this moment when we don't know what we're talking about or the consumer doesn't necessarily yet know how to evaluate. Twilight, I'm curious. You mentioned that um, soil scientists have been studying tree range farms and comparing the soil to conventional farms
2: in the area. What did they find? Sure. So. This is still in the works, and it was interesting to speak with a few of the scientists, but they've been going out to Rehi's farm regularly for the last few years. They've had some funding to do that, and they're gathering a lot of data about water quality, the water that's, that's running off the farm. They're looking at, the, they're measuring the, the carbon in the soil, and they're measuring the carbon that's coming off of the soil, I believe. Is that right, Ray?
1: Correct. It's multiple layers of measurements, all the way from biology, biological activity, to nutrient flows, to nutrient density in the soil, uh, to biomass, both uh, soil organic matter, but also um, um, biomass above ground. Uh, there's a, Some of those measurements cannot be done yet, um, but to the extent that the equipment is available um, with um greenhouse gas emissions we, <clears throat> we are able to measure most of them uh greenhouse i mean um, co2 also um, uh, methane and and so on the um the biological activity in the soil is is critical to us cuz again you know the carbon cycle is central on life uh life on earth is carbon based that's the foundation of re realigning the carbon cycle and so carbon sequestration is actually not something we're interested in we're interested in the carbon cycle and that life cycle of the carbon is, is what we are trying to optimize. So as we asked them, we said, uh, we don't want you to just come and measure for the purpose of of um, um, telling us whether this system works or not. We want us to look at it, measure what it's doing and validate what it's doing and how it is doing it. And so to that extent, The structure of the soil was has been evaluated extensively, because the structure of the soil defines almost everything else. It defines the biology, carbon cycling capacity, carbon sequestration itself uh, is also defined by those that soil structure and so on. And so, the oldest production unit, which is almost seventeen years old now, that showed the future of all of the farms that we have going on right now. And there is hazelnuts that have been uh, producing for at least eight years in that production unit. And those hazelnuts are out producing the hazelnuts outside of the p- paddocks where there is no chickens by a factor of two and 2.5 times. And not only that, but the, um, the level of nutrition in that soil is so evident by the fact that not only are the hazelnuts loading more optimally, but they are losing less babies, so to speak, um, the uh, average, you know, empty nuts in a, in a harvest, for example, is upwards of 30 percent per, you know, and in, in we are finding that less than 10 percent, an average of 5 percent, you know, of empty nuts are showing up in our harvest. So you take that 30 percent increase in actual biomass productivity, plus the fact that it's almost two times as more, more per bush, And you really have the indicators that we're looking for that we want this scientist to validate. They just want us, we just want them to validate how that happened um, so that we can then go back and say, this is the scientific foundation of actual regeneration, understood regeneration and regenerative systems, not as a set of practices, but rather as outcomes. And those outcomes being completely energy centered biophysics and chemistry uh, of the the ecosystem functioning optimally to transform the maximum amount of energy into edible outputs, which is the foundation of landscape functioning, and so uh, of ecosystem functioning. And so within that context is that we are trying to get the scientists to measure what matters. And, you know, because this whole craziness with carbon sequestration and carbon, 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 it's only going to get us into more trouble. It's not going to solve the climate crisis. The climate crisis will solve when we understand life on the planet. And that's what we are trying to do with this scientists.
0: And, Rehi, Twilight mentions that your background of growing up in studying agronomy in Guatemala influenced the design of your poultry system. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, bottom line is we design from what we call an indigenous perspective. It implies a lot of things. Uh, which are now implied in regenerative narrative, but it's really an indigenous set of principles. So when you think of indigenousness, think of two things. We are born with wisdom and knowledge that we just inherit. You can be dropped in the middle of the forest like Tarzan and, and still will learn to behave as a human because we are coded to do those things. And that makes us that brings us to to this world with this innate intelligence. You take that innate intelligence and you aggregate observations, elders' thinking, storytelling, knowledge that comes from that kind of observation, meditation, and, and story sharing, and then you end up with this very important next stage, which we call the indigenous intellect, and that is the combination of knowledge and wisdom and innate intelligence. And then you take the conventional training, which teaches you about physics and and biology and chemistry and all of that, so that we can actually see and read what's going on in front of us. We may not understand it still, but we can see it and read it. And that gives us a lot more knowledge as well. You combine all of that and what you end up with is, is with an indigenous understanding of life and the interactions, not only over time in the past, but also how it may interact into the future. When you see things that way and you come into this space with the intention of developing a livestock production system, the first thing you do is you you forget about all of the knowledge that you have. Remember, the knowledge, not the intellect, not the indigenous ways. And then go and look at the world from the perspective of that species. That species could be the hazelnut, the oats or the chicken or the buffalo, it doesn't matter. But you look at the world and the other living systems from the perspective of that species to the best of your indigenous intellectual capacity. When you do that, then the other 95, 96% of the possibilities open up in front of your eyes. Other, If you don't do that, if you go through the traditional linear way, we are indoctrinated and Domesticated into uh, through the edu- so what we call educational system. If you only use that, you end up with the five percent, which makes us believe that confining animals is somehow smarter uh, on a planetary and on a health and on a climate basis. That you that's what I learned growing up was just a framework, and then populated with the experiences, and that allows us to design what we are doing. That came from that grounding and that foundation that I'm, I'm trying to communicate to people as they start coming into this place that we are now calling regenerative and asking them and begging them to please not use the colonizing mindset as you come into this space, because, because it, it's already happening that folks are coming and quote unquote, discovering this new space, and now they are naming it regenerative. And that's exactly what Christopher Columbus did and what other colonizers did They came into a space thinking they had discovered that it didn't exist before. And then they named it. And then they appropriated it. And then they defined it. And then they made it into another exploitative, extractive, and colonizing tool. And that's what we are at risk of doing right now with this amazing way of thinking, of being, of relating, and knowing, and, and applying our full human intellect to actually understand life on the planet and recover us from the magnitude of the the almost irreversible damage we have done to ourselves and to everything else, everything else, and living in this in this planet.
0: One of the things the story mentions is how your system breaks down barriers to entry with respect to poultry farming, so new farmers and immigrant farmers can start with your program even while they're still potentially working another job. Can you talk a little bit about why access is an important part of the project?
1: Well, it's critical to understand that to try to change conventional minds, it's really a multi-generational job. And we do not have many generations anymore to change the minds of executives in companies, presidents of the the world, uh, people in charge of the systems that are destroying the planet in the name of food, changing their minds. We actually don't have time for that anymore. And so what we need is to engineer systems that can be adapted by those who are ready, who do not need convincing. All they need is opportunity to do the right thing. And it just happens that it is the immigrants, the folks who have not yet been part of destroying the planet and yet are almost 100 percent of the victims of the destruction of the planet. Those are the folks who are ready to change things or who are ready to start right, because some of them haven't even had the opportunity to farm yet uh, in the way that that can make a difference in the, in the larger context of things. And so for us, it was critical to engineer not only the agronomics, but also the architecture of each production unit in the simplest, most affordable way while still uh, aiming for scale. And so this led us to think thoroughly about how the chickens are raised, how many, the production unit size. I mean, at one and a half acres, There is hardly a farmer in this country. And that includes me, who all up to three years ago, all I had was 1.9 acres. And yet in those 1.9 acres, we were able to build all of these systems, agronomics and all of that. And that speaks to the possibilities that everyone at a mass scale can get involved. Because also, as, as you may find out if you look at the global statistics, 70% of our food, apparently, approximately, according to the United Nations and the the Food and Agriculture Organization, is produced by over 700 million farmers operating on under 25 acres. And so, if we actually want to change the world, that is actually the strategy. Trying to change the large farms and the conventional system as a foundation for having the impact we need to have may happen faster, may could It could happen beautifully. And in the time we have, the problem is there is no evidence to support a theory of change where that is actually uh, the, the right route. While right in front of us, there is over 32 million people in this country who right now labor and toil every day to deliver what we call cheap food, which is an, is an illusion, by the way. And yet they are some of the most promising change makers in the agricultural sector, they know and they understand what I'm talking about, and they are so willing to go and do these things if the opportunity arises. So why would we operate in any other way when our goal is to really deliver not only regenerative outcomes, which include the social well-being of everyone, especially those being exploited by the system right now and discarded at the end of their lives, the very young lives, by the way, but also those who are more ready to embrace these ways of thinking and to recover their ancestral heritage. Now, to the extent that other farmers that are conventional are willing to do that, well, hallelujah, let's celebrate that and let's welcome them and let's work with everyone. Um, But we got to understand the reality of the world today. And the reality is that that sector is really entrenched and for the most part has no power the farmers in that system have no power because it was taken away from them through those tournament systems and so on that renders them indentured servants of those systems rather than independent farmers that somehow can make choices of their own. That condition, that lost, complete loss of control and ownership of the system, is actually another huge barrier where the farmer is no longer the one that decides whether to change or not. Is the system that decides that, in the system is not interested right now in, in going in this direction. Now, if that were to change, believe me, I'll be the first one sitting in those board meetings because I every day I wake up and wish for that because we ran out of time already. And having run out of time gives you a sense of urgency that I don't think these folks understand. But if, if they do come to understand that and do want to actually solve these things, uh, it would be the most awesome thing that could happen to all of us and to the planet.
0: You also mentioned that both governments and private industries have funded the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance's farmer training and its demonstration farm. Can you tell us a bit why corporations like Oatly and General Mills are interested in supporting regenerative poultry farming?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there are two, two reasons. And I will, I will name the first one is that there is a new wave of younger people that are coming into those spaces. And they do understand what I'm talking about and what many of us are talking about. Now, they're still up against the corporate infrastructure that holds them back as well, but they are there and they are looking at this. And then the other reason is because some of those folks were also brought into those companies to innovate and to bring new ideas. The companies understand, these companies understand that the way we are going, their supply chain isn't going to be there anyway. So if you're in the business like of oats like Oatly, Uh, You got to be really ignorant not to understand that if the planet keeps, you know, the climate keeps going the way it is, oats with such a limited um, blueprint for where they grow and all of that, there isn't going to be one of the crops that is going to do well. And so if that is the case, where is your company going to go when the whole premise of the company is oat milk, right? So that puts you in a very difficult situation. And it's the same thing for General Mills and many other companies. now whether they are willing to to embrace the whole solution or rather just want to go one or two steps and sort of like fix the immediate issue rather than the permanent issue. That's a whole nother story. And that's what I'm talking about when I say we are not there yet. But again, you know, the energy of the universe is amazing. If the three of us tomorrow wake up and we wish for that to happen and then more and more people wish for that to happen, that energy will get there, and hopefully, by the time we have sufficient farm demonstration, demonstration farms, and the, the, you know, with the help of some innovators in those businesses and those who are willing to advocate in the corporate and government systems for what we are doing, then we will have the proof of concept, so that then the the, the opportunity can be shared with everyone. It would just be better if we didn't have to toil the way we are right now with such little resources to, to, to get the results that we are achieving. It would be great if we could come together and just take the pain away because this is not easy work. And right now, yes, we have some support, but it is so, so small. Uh, I can't do what I, I can't go out and, do the, and implement the capacity that I have right now. I can do 1% of what I could do the reality was another.
2: Twilight, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I have been speaking with folks, sustainability officers within corporations for a while, and I do think that many of them, I agree with Rahi, many of them are looking at their supply chains and thinking, thinking about the future, and some of them are looking at their marketing plans and thinking about how to, how to fit uh, various, various small little pieces into the marketing plan. Um, and I think a lot of them are are only able to do so much within what, what the larger company, you know, the larger sort of machine. But I, I have been, I will say I have been heartened by how much they seem to understand whether, <laughs> whether they can really get traction is another question.
0: Mm hmm. And Twilight, you also mentioned in the story that Tree Range Farms has a small processing plant, and I understand that processing can be a choke point for small meat producers around the country. Is processing a barrier for scaling this type of regenerative poultry system
2: as well? I think I think processing is a huge barrier for a lot of small-scale producers and has been for the last few decades. This is an interesting moment where the USDA has put a little bit of money towards empowering, I would say, and supporting and building up the infrastructure, even in, in some small ways. But I'm curious to see what that looks like on the larger scale. And looking at the way that Tree Range Farms and RAA, the, R- the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance, are working with this particular processor where they were able to, to buy it themselves, run it themselves. I hadn't seen a model quite like this. And that was why I, I got up at seven in the morning to drive down there from uh, where I was staying in Minneapolis because I wanted to see it for myself. And it was it was an inspiring experience to to hear from the workers, to hear from the folks who are running the plant and who are taking this very different approach to let's build small, let's scale it up with the humans in mind, with the animals in mind, let's let's build it in a different way, because I think a lot of meat processing as Rehi has said earlier, a lot of it comes very much from the top down, and they're thinking like numbers. They're thinking, how do we move as many birds through as we can, as quickly as we can? So so yes, I, I found it uh, to be one of the most interesting pieces of the free range farm story and the, the RAA story at this point.
0: And Rehi, can you talk a little bit more about the inputs, what the chickens are eating? You talked about forage and... Um, the ability to sprout some grains, and you mentioned a little bit about corn and soy and maybe the potential to move away from that. Can you tell us a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are the things you have to do in this business, are uh, very similar to scientific research. You can only deal with one factor at a time. If you try to deal with all of them, you get paralyzed, and you just don't advance. And so we had to choose entry points, what to tackle first, and so on. So we tackled the agronomics, we tackled all these other things that I have talked about already. And then comes in other areas, such as processing, right? So processing wasn't the first thing we tackled. We had another small processor in our region that we could use for a while. while we were doing, say, under 10,000 chickens, they, it was fine. And then we grew them and we had to deal with that. And so we, we then dealt with the processor the way we thought was best same thing with hatcheries, same thing with all kinds of other sectors, same thing with with the grain grain sources and processing. So we figured instead of trying to redo the formulation for how you produce feed, since it's already quite evolved and actually quite efficient if you ask me, based on corn and soybeans, then I mean that is a really tall order to try to go and change that in the landscape. So we figured the first thing we needed to do was establish ownership, control, and governance of the other components up to the milling facility. And we have done that. We now have our own internal, the same as we have a poultry processing facility, we have a grain grinding and mixing facility out of Medillia, Minnesota. I mean, it, and you gotta understand, these are ours in the context of the system, but they are owned and operated by independent business people who are committed to the system and benefit. But the benefit is mutual and whether we got loyalty to them and they got loyalty to us. That's really what it means when I say we own and operate a milling facility, not me or my family or it's like that. Right. So it's an ecosystem of businesses. And so now as we scale up, we don't, still don't have enough throughput to actually influence the way we, we reformulate those, those the grain mixes. But we have the, the the landscape capacity to sprout grain. And so we are starting to shift the sourcing of grain. Only small grains are being sprouted in the fields. One, because that's what the chicken needs because they can't swallow larger grains. And two, because that way we can incentivize the extra production and the farm is shifting to a more diverse set of grains, rotations and smaller grains. And then it starts to put perennial crops so that they can actually grow the grain under a more regenerative set of uh, practices. Now, as we do that with the sprouts, and we some of that grain can go into our own milling facility, we're starting to have influence on the sources of grains. It, but it's still too small. Um, we need we need to be able to produce between two to five million chickens before there is enough throughput for us to actually assemble that as an independent business. And at that point, we will have already proved the concept of how you do all the crop grains. We would have the proven the rotations and all of that. And at that point, then we can start eliminating some of those other practices. Now, if we were able to a partner with a milling facility that already has plenty of volumes and they are supplying other producers, and they were willing to to shift their sourcing standards for grain. It would be awesome if that were to happen. Now, since that hasn't happened yet, we're building it. Just like there was no poultry processing facility that was willing to turn ownership to the to the workers, right? I mean, it's very similar. And so we had to go and put it together. Um, the grain facility and the grain sourcing is similar. The good news about the grain is that there are way more farmers that are interested in growing a diversity of grains under different standards, then there are, say, poultry growers willing to switch. And so the grain part is not going to be our biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is going to be opening enough markets and raising enough capital to build enough farms so that we can create the demand for the grain. The grain supply is actually quite easy to, to acquire.
0: Do you think that ultimately that grain supply should be um, regional? So that um, you know, an, a, a particular region is growing its own um, grain supplier. Do you, do you envision a bigger, bigger scale sort of answer?
1: Yes. Now, now you got to understand that. That I mean, listeners have to understand that there are places where grain, that the ecology isn't fit to grow grain. I'll give you an example. In Guatemala, we're working with. Um, over 300 farms, very tiny farms. This, we're talking about half an acre farms, an acre farms. Um, so altogether, it's probably a, a farm here in the U.S., and yet hundreds of people um, dispersed, right? Now, the ecology of Guatemala doesn't support uh, annual crops, period. The whole country. And so in those conditions, if we're going to do something like this, it's way better from an from a footprint perspective, carbon footprint and everything, to say source all of the grain from the corn belt in the United States and then ship it on large scale to Guatemala rather than trying to do, you know, alley crops and so-called regenerative grain production in Guatemala. It may be the same in some parts of the United States, like, you know, going down to the Southwest where water is so scarce. If we're able to, to engage with producers down there and we're thinking about about egg production for that region, um, we will be able to build the, the ecological conditions for the poultry, but not necessarily to justify growing grains in that region. And so we may want, and then the key is to go to the closest ecologically fit blueprint to bring that grain over, rather than you know sourcing it from China, or Brazil, right? For here in the Midwest, there is absolutely no reason why we can grow all of the grain for all of the poultry we would ever want to grow in the 12 states in the, in the Midwest.
0: Mm-hmm. Faye, I want to circle back to the idea of indigenous intellect. Twilight quotes you as saying that indigenous intellect can overcome extractive capitalistic systems. How has it been mixing and melding what's sometimes called traditional ecological knowledge or ways of knowing with contemporary U.S. agribusiness? So
1: here's something that, that at this pivoting point in the history of our human presence on the planet, we got to understand clearly. And that is, there is no way forward with the current way we are relating to everything. So whether we like it or not, there is a reckoning here with the biophysics and chemistry of the planet that we have been we have been disrupting over and over and over and we coming to the end of that string on the other hand there is an incredible reward spiritual especially what the dalai lama calls the art of happiness and if we actually believe our motto that you know we are here to pursue happiness and well-being and that the pursuit of happiness is one of the greatest dreams of the american of the democratic experiment, then what better way to do that than to embrace this way of thinking that by definition and by design is centered on on taking advantage and optimizing all of the assets we already have, which is an ultimate source of happiness anyway. And then relating, if you are an executive today and you want to innovate, the greatest pinnacle of innovation today is to actually get better at exactly this art of 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 merging the ancestral intellect with the modern knowledge base that we have accumulated the opposite is so impoverishing of the soul and the spirit that it makes you a miserable multimillionaire and so what what we are finding is is that once once that thread is finished, and you get to the other side, and you now you are a trillionaire, and you got all the money in the world, and still you you don't you can't find purpose uh, in life, and you still like now starting to look for purpose in the outer space because you can no longer find it here. It's not going to be there. Period. Right. This is where the indigenous intellect comes quite handy, and the beauty of it is that we all carry it. All we have to do is remove that blockage that we have imposed over it so that it can emerge again. And that, that is truly when we start to, to, to engage our true humanity. And once you start doing that, it's not only invigorating physically, you get rid of depression, you get rid of so many, now I'm not saying you cure it, but you get rid of so many of the mental illnesses that we have imposed on ourselves that are not natural to our human, uh, our human nature. We have imposed them and acquired them and enhanced them because of the way we live and the way we think and relate. All of that, all of that artificial, artificial sickening, goes away. And what comes after that is so—I don't want to call it addicting, but so rewarding that you want more of it more and more. And I think that's the secret to getting to those individuals who find themselves getting up in the morning with no purpose for that specific day they're about to live. And that to me is like, I think all of us, all of us are living through a time when the, the intellectual and spiritual poverty that we are living through in the pursuit of, of economic well-being, believing somehow that that is actually the true expression of wealth, that misunderstanding of the true purpose of a human being is what is, is undoing us. And when we start realizing the beauty of the other side of the indigenous intellect and what it tells us about ourselves and everything else, everything changes. Everything. Despite all of these challenges we're going through, you are not gonna find me either unhappy or depressed here. I got more reasons to be depressed right now than probably many other folks around because this is an overwhelming task that we took, that that we put ourselves through. Uh, but no, you are not gonna see that because every single day has so much purpose and meaning, despite the challenges. That I would like us to share collectively, especially in the executive suites where people are finding themselves going in this circle with no end in sight, no purpose, and nothing to go home proud of, except those who are proud of destroying the planet, being bigots, and and, and and being being something else than human. Those folks I can't talk about or whatever, but except for those folks, the rest of us are actually pursuing, trying to be more human. And I think we can get there by embracing this ancestral inheritance that I choose to call our Indigenous intellect and way of being?
2: I mean, I think a lot of it for me as a white woman, as a, you know, essentially a settler who is not an Indigenous person, but who is spending a lot of time thinking about and learning from Indigenous folks right now, I would say that a lot of it comes down to what you and I spoke to I believe it was two years ago now, which is noticing and slowing down within our modern life and tuning into the natural world. I do think that food and agriculture can do that for us. Paying more attention to the food that we eat, how it's grown can be a pathway and has been a pathway for me personally. And I think for probably a lot of your listeners and your readers can bring us to a junction where we actually can choose are we going to approach food as a consumerist enterprise are we going to just continue to think about what restaurant can we go to how can it boost our sense of status you know our role within this kind of consumerist society or i think there's this other turn that we can take as consumers as eaters where we can start to look at not just what's behind the food who are the people what are the plants doing what are the animals doing but also Who are we in relation to those animals and plants and people? And what is our relationship to them? How do we relate to them? How do they potentially relate to us? And we can't all go to a farm like Rehe's. I was really fortunate to get to visit and see it. I've been to a lot of farms. It's built me up as a person who believes this stuff in a very sort of full-bodied way. But I think just trying to understand it differently and trying to dig into this a little bit differently can do a lot for the average eater. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, definitely, thanks.
1: Yeah, I'd like to just add one more thing to this whole concept of indigenousness because very often we tend to think about indigenous peoples as native people. So think of it this way. There's a lot of us who are native to a certain territory whether it's the Lakota or the Maya people, my ancestors from the Mayan northern rainforest of Guatemala, those makes us native to that space. Indigenous. Indigenous, we all are to the planet because we are actually made of the elements of the earth. We are carbon-based life form. That makes us indigenous to the planet. And that indigenousness, if we want to embrace it, is in all of us. Now, the fact that there are whole populations that have chosen to embrace the colonizer that they were also born with, rather than the indigenous nature they were born with, that is a choice for sectors of the population and for some of us individually to make. But if we choose not to select the colonizer, and we choose to bring it into balance with the indigenous self, and we are more indigenous than we are colonizers, and meaning literally we are more in tune with all of those living systems and we refuse to destroy them either in the name of food or in the name of profit, but rather we are willing to live with that. That's the essence of being indigenous. And that is a sentiment that is shared by native communities who practice indigenous ways and by many who are trying to build this new way of being and relating and understanding that we want to call regenerative and so that is important for us to center on and meditate on because every human being on the planet has the full innate intelligence and capacity to behave as an indigenous organism to the planet and to stop killing it in the name of all of these other things that we have come up with.
0: Thank you, Rehi and Twilight, so much for joining us here. We've been listening to Twilight Greenaway and Reginaldo Haslet Maroquin. Thank you for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at EdibleCommunities.com.